This week is Hebrews chapter 5, okay? Hebrews chapter 5, I want to read for you verses 7 through 10, and then we're going to get into what's going on behind these verses and what I hope you can take home from God's Word today. So let's start in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, and I want you to watch out for the phrase, source of salvation, that's going to come in a couple of verses. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, here's the key, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. May God bless the reading of his word. So in his recent and very good book called A Thrill of Orthodoxy, Trevin Wax starts out that book by saying this, The church faces her biggest challenge, not when new errors start to win out, but when the old truths no longer wow us. The church gets into dangerous territory, not necessarily when new errors are introduced. That is a problem. That is something we face. We get into a bad situation when we are no longer wowed, when we are no longer overwhelmed by those core old truths of theology. If we ever get away from that foundation, we start to go down a dangerous path. We have to hold on to Christ as the source of salvation. We have to hold on to those theological beliefs that form the foundation of our lives. When I think about getting back to the source of something and being wowed by it and overwhelmed by its power, here's what I think about. In southern Colorado, uh, there's a highway that cuts east-west across southern Colorado, Highway 160. If you start on the west, it's kind of Pagosa Springs, Wolf Creek, South Fork. It goes over toward Alamosa, and then you get east of Alamosa there in southern Colorado, and you can turn north. And it takes you to a place called the Great Sand Dunes. Anybody been to the Great Sand Dunes in southern Colorado? Yeah, fantastic place. So uh, if you ever get a chance, head up that direction. You go up that direction. As you're going on the highway up toward the Great Sand Dunes, off to the east, there's a big mountain. I think it's called Mount Blanca. And as you turn the road going up that mountain, it takes you to a parking lot. And you get out of the car in the parking lot, and you start to walk up this hiking trail. It's a beautiful hiking trail. And as you're walking up the hiking trail, you start to hear the sound of the waterfall. And you're like, there better be a waterfall if we're dragging our whole family up here. <laughs> like, you see people walking up the trail, like there better be something at the, end, at the end of this trail. And so you're heading up there and you start to, to go around the corner and you get the feeling you're, you're going back toward the source of something. You're going back to something that, that's pretty overwhelming. And then you start to come around a corner into a canyon area and here's what you see when you go around that corner. Yeah, wow, that's right. Like, uh, so we, when we were there in May, we were there as the frozen waterfall was starting to melt. And so you have this water that's in all kinds of blue and green, and you've got the waterfall rushing in behind it. And it's one of those moments as a dad, you're like, oh, thank goodness that paid off. Like, <laughs> it was going to be really hard to explain to my family why I drug them up this trail if there was nothing when we got there. But you get back to the source of something, and you think, thank you, God, for that. I'm reminded of your goodness. I'm reminded of your beauty. I'm reminded of your power. When we think about the things of the Lord, here's what I want to remind you as a church. It is worth it 
to do the hard work to get back to the source of what we believe. I know you may be here this morning and you think theology equals boring, equals unimportant, equals that's just not me. And I want to tell you this morning that doing the hard work of theology is God's goodness in your life to see all that he has done for you, all that he wants to do in your life, all that he means for you. And so I want to lay out for you this morning something that might feel a little bit academic, but I hope it's a gift. Because I know as a church we value scripture, we value theology. So here's the framework. I don't think I've ever presented this on Sunday morning. We've done this Wednesday night, Sunday night. But here's the framework. It's called the four layers of theology. And we have all these notes online. If you go to EmmausOKC.org slash Christ, it'll just take you to a webpage because there's a lot of stuff. I don't want you to feel like you have to, to write it all down. It's all, it's all right there for you. But it's called the four layers of theology. And if you're trying to get back to the source of what you believe, if you're trying to think, what is this all about? What is the Bible about? What's theology about? What are we supposed to believe? You go through this process where you start out with biblical theology, and you're just trying to answer the question, what does the Bible say about this particular topic? Or what does the Bible teach me in this particular section? And so you're doing theological work. Who is God? What has God done in my life? Why does it matter? And you're doing it from the foundation of just understanding the scriptures. And then you ask yourself, what have other people thought about this? Like, I'm not the first person to read the Bible. We're not the first church to deal with these questions. So you start to back up into history and you do what's called historical theology. You ask yourself, what have other believers around the globe thought about this issue? What have other believers throughout history thought about this? And I know in a room like this, some of you hear history and you think, yes. And some of you hear history and you think, oh no, all my worst nightmares from school and like, this is not what I want. But you do this work in history because you're trying to remind yourself you're surrounded by the body of Christ. You're not the first person who's dealt with this question. Then we know the Bible. We know what other people have thought about this. Then we do what's called systematic theology. We start to bring these verses together. We start to bring these teachings and theologies together, and we start to ask ourselves the question, hey, does all of this fit together? Like, how do these pieces of the puzzle how do they fit together to give me a picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus did when he came to earth and, and why that matters for my life? So we do systematic theology. And then at that point, you ask yourself, so what? So what might sound like a rude question in church. I'm telling you it's the best Bible question you can ask. <laughs> when you get to this point and you have this theology and you have these teachings and the pastor teaches you things and you study your Bible and you get to the end and you say, so what? Like, practically, what does that teaching about Jesus, how does it impact my life? How does it impact my marriage? How does it impact our church? How does it impact the world we live in? And so you go through this process with any passage you study, with any issue you're dealing with in your life. What does the Bible say about this? What can we learn historically? How do I put the pieces together? So what? What do I do with that? So what I want to do for you this morning is I want us to walk through that process here in Hebrews chapter 5. As we're thinking about Hebrews chapter 5, as we're thinking about these issues that are involved, how can we walk through that process and say, what does God's word in Hebrews chapter 5 teach me about my life and about the world that we live in? So let's go through that. Verse 1, we're just going to work ourselves through this, trying to build up a biblical theology of these verses, because this is a very theologically rich section of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, let's start there. 
It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Okay, when you read a verse like that, immediately you see the idea of a high priest. And so you tell yourself, there's something going on here scripturally. There's something going on in these verses. This character of a high priest really matters for how I understand what's going to come next. Who is a high priest? What does a high priest do? This may be helpful. We're going to try it out, okay? When you see priest here in the Bible, if you substitute the word broker, B-R-O-K-E-R, if you substitute the word broker, that gets you really close to what a high priest did. A high priest was the one who provided access to God for the people that they couldn't get otherwise. Like, I need access to this product. I need access to this property. I need access to something. You go through a broker. The priest acted as the broker, as the mediator. How can I get access to God, to his presence, to his benefits in my life? I need a priest to make that possible. And so what did the priest do? It says the priest was chosen from among men and was appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So our sins separated us from God. We needed someone to deal with those sins so we could have access to God. So there was a priest. Verse 2. What about this priest? This priest is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So when a priest was offering the sacrifices and making it possible for people to have access to God, at the same time, that priest realized, I've got my own problems. I have my own sin. I have my own struggles. And so we find out in the next verse, look in verse 3. Because of this, in verse 3, that priest is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So a priest in the Old Testament had to offer sacrifices for his own sins and also for the sins of the people so they could have access to God. So we've set up this foundation. You're thinking, okay, biblically, I need to know more about the priest. I need to know why there are priests in the Bible. Lead me to the next part. Okay, verse 5, what happens? Here's your transition. Verse 5. So also Christ. Circle it, highlight it, underline it. Like this is the key transition here in verse 5. We've learned about the priest, and now the author says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, appointed by God. So here you have the transition. Here's the priest doing their work so we could have access to God. Here comes a new and better high priest. All throughout the book of Hebrews, we find that Jesus is better than. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Adam, than Moses, than Joshua. And then most of the book of Hebrews is going to show us how Jesus is better than the priest. He is able to give us access to God in a way that the priest never could. Why? Why can Jesus do that? Well, look at the next verse. Verse 6, or middle of verse 5. What did God say about him? He said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's a passage that's taken from the book of Psalms and, and was used in Hebrews 1. He also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
So God looks to Jesus and says, you are my son, and you are the priest, and you are able to take all of my benefits, all my goodness, and make it known to these people, and because of you, they will have access to me. They will be able to come into my presence. How could Jesus do that? He had to take on flesh. Look at verse 7. This is the Christmas. I know it doesn't look like Christmas in verse 7, but this is Christmas happening in verse 7. It says there, in the days of his flesh, when Jesus took on flesh, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Quick Bible quiz here. If it if you read verse 7 up there, Jesus offering up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who's able to save him from death. What Bible story from the New Testament seems to be reflected in those verses? It feels like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's praying, Father, let this cup pass from me. Is there any way I don't have to face death in this situation? He's crying out. It also sounds like and feels like Jesus' cry from the cross. So we have this reality that in Jesus' life, leading up to his death and at the time of the death, he's calling out to the Father. He is dealing with the reality of suffering and evil in the world. Why? Well, verse 8, just keep asking why when you read the Bible. Keep asking why. It's like every two-year-old kid knows how to read the Bible really well. Why? 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 So why? Verse 8. Although Jesus was a son, although he was the son of God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, when you see here that Jesus learned obedience, there should be a part of you that says, wait, time out. Are you sure Jesus learned anything? Like, what does it mean that Jesus grew in obedience? It doesn't mean that Jesus was disobedient and then became obedient. When you see that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, what it means is Jesus went to the school of hard knocks. That, that's what it means. It means Jesus, through his suffering, through his life, through what he faced, he was able to experience obedience to the Father in a way he wouldn't have been able to otherwise. So Jesus learned obedience. He learned what it was to submit his will to the Father because of the things that he suffered through. There are some things in life you can't learn unless you go through the valley of suffering. There are some things in life you can't learn unless you just go through it and you know what it is to experience that difficulty and suffering and what you learn about the Lord through that. Verse 9. What happened as a result of him learning obedience? And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's another phrase here that should make you think, are you sure about that? <laughs> like, are you, are you sure of that? And being made perfect. Does that mean there was a time when Jesus wasn't perfect? No. When you see the word perfect in your Bible, almost always in your mind, think about the word complete or whole. 
it's come to completion. For something to be made perfect means it goes through a process from over here to over here. It doesn't mean imperfect becoming perfect. It means incomplete becoming complete. Remember, Jesus learned obedience by going to the school of hard knocks. He was made perfect when he graduated from the school of hard knocks, when he fulfilled his mission, when he carried out all that God had called him and appointed him to do. What's the result of Jesus' work? He became the source of eternal salvation for all of those who trust in him, who devote their lives to him, who follow him in obedience. That's the biblical theology that's put together. So here's what you do in Sunday school, okay? Or here's what you do in your journal at home. You're telling yourself, I'm supposed to develop a biblical theology. I'm supposed to understand what's going on here. So if you go to my wife's Bible study or you're in her Sunday school class, at this point, you make a chart, okay? (laughs) All theology questions are helped by making a chart. Uh, You're always going to be good in in doing that. So I've kind of laid out a chart up here of what I would think about if I was doing a biblical theology of, of Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. We know that this is a passage about the priest, So in Sunday school or or in your Bible study, you're asking yourself, okay, what did the priests do? Like, who who were the priests? Well, they were set apart from the people to offer sacrifices, but I also know they faced their own sin, their own personal weakness. Then you're always comparing it to something else. Okay, so there's the priest. How do the priests compare to Jesus when he came? Well, he was also set apart, but he's different than the priest. He is set apart as God's son. And he came and he dealt with weakness and suffering, but he did not sin. He did not need a sacrifice for himself. He came to be the sacrifice. So I see from these verses that who Jesus is and what he came to do is far greater than any human priest could ever do. So I get to this point and then I start to ask myself, What are some questions that people have dealt with throughout history about this? So I start to do some historical theology at this point. Well, put a couple of things up here for you. Historical theology. Number one, what is the priesthood? When you hear priest, you might start to ask, have there always been priests in the church? Uh, Some of you may have grown up in a church where in order to pray or in order to have access to certain things, you had to go through a priest to gain access to that. I would tell you when you read your Bible and you work your way through the New Testament, you find that Jesus is the perfect high priest and those who begin to follow him, we become priests. We become a kingdom of priests. And so you do not have to go through any human being. You do not have to go through any any human institution to gain access to God. You go through Jesus. And let that set you free from any religious background you might be carrying with you into a room like this. Because of Jesus, you have access to the Father. That's the good news of doing this theology. Who is this Jesus? Well, throughout history, people have debated, is he fully God? Is he fully man? How do we understand the Trinity? Man, wait for a two-year-old to ask you that, or a four-year-old, or a a 50-year-old to ask you that. Like, how do we understand the relation between one God, three persons? And if you think to yourself, man, that doesn't really matter. Well, have a conversation with a friend that comes from a different religious background. And, and you'll find out really quickly those questions about who Jesus is as fully God and fully man causes some big divisions uh, among different religious groups and as people start to ask you questions. So we have, to, we have to work our way through that. And throughout the history of the church, there have been different church councils 
and different creeds, and the churches come together to, to address some of these things. And what's happened over the years is we've been able to develop this systematic understanding, this, this big picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so what I want, what I want to do for you on the systematic theology side of this, of this thing this morning is I want to give you, drum roll please, hold, hold your horses, I want to give you 15 points about Jesus. And you're like, oh man, seriously, are you, do you know what time it is? Do you know how hot it is in here? Like, you're going to give me 15 points about Jesus? Have you lost your mind? Okay, think about these. Number one, they're on the website at EmmausOKC.org slash Christ. Okay, you can go find them there, right? So they're there. These, friend, hear this. These are not 15 answers to a theology quiz. Imagine yourself just standing under a waterfall and the goodness of God coming over you. And, and so we receive these 15 points, not that I need to write them down for a quiz. I need to receive these 15 points about Jesus because I need to be reminded how good he is and how beautiful he is and how powerful he is and how loving he is. So let me walk you through, if I was putting together a systematic theology about Jesus, which I did for you this week online, don't worry about writing these down, let me walk you through this. Number one, number one is that he is the eternal son of God. Hear me clearly. There never was a time when the son of God did not exist, okay? This is so important. As you talk to your friends that come from different religious backgrounds, as you talk to your friends who have different, uh, different faiths, the eternal son of God has always existed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together as one God has always existed. We have to hold on to that reality. The eternal Son of God was active in your Old Testament. You're going to find places in the Old Testament when the Son of God is at work, but he has not yet taken on flesh in the Old Testament, okay? Jesus was not bored before he was born in Bethlehem, all right? The Son of God has been in active, has been involved in all things from the point of creating all things, sustaining creation, working in the Old Testament, right up to the time number three happens, the famous word incarnate or incarnation. If incarnation doesn't do anything for you, doesn't make sense, just write Christmas, <laughs> uh, or just write that he took on flesh, that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. There was a time when the eternal Son of God took on flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. That happened in a real place at a real time, and it makes a real impact on our lives. Number four, he lived a fully human life. When you speak about Jesus as the Son of God, he was fully God and fully human. And I know that blows our minds. It's hard to grasp how do you have a divine will and a human will we hold on to those. We hold on to that because that is the teaching of Scripture. It's what we learn from how salvation works. It's what we learn from the church. When I'm talking about Jesus, I'm not talking about just a spiritual man, and I'm not talking about a God that came down to earth and pretended to be a man. He was fully divine and fully human. Number five, he learned obedience through suffering. Jesus went through trials and temptations. He was crucified. He was buried. He descended to the point of the dead. Number nine, after he died, he was raised from the dead. And hear me, he came back from the dead bodily. If you're here this morning, let me just say something really quickly as we run through this list. 
if you're here this morning and you hear all this and you're like, that's cool that you're passionate about that. I'm just not sure I believe that. I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I'm not sure I want to go down that, that path. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. This is the key point right here. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, you can throw everything else away, okay? You can throw the whole thing away. If he did rise from the dead, it makes sense of everything on both sides of it. Everything I've said up to this point and everything I'm going to say after this. And so if you're investigating Christianity, if you're, if you're curious about this, wondering why people believe these things, if you're going to start one place, start right there with the idea of the resurrection of Jesus, that he died, he was buried, and he rose again. What happened after he rose again? He appeared to dozens and then, and then ultimately hundreds of people. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Number 11, Number 12, he reigns over all things. He ascended to the right hand of the Father to reign over all things. He upholds the world by the power of his word. You're crazy, my crazy, all the crazy we see around. He upholds all things by the power of his word. And he lives to intercede for you. When you speak badly about yourself in your head, when you accuse yourself, when other people slander you, when you face lies, when you think, I can't keep going, the Son of God is interceding for you. He is at work on your behalf, reminding you of the hope that you have. And number 15, he will return one day to make all things right. That is the Son of God. That is the source of your salvation. And that is better than any waterfall you could find in Colorado. That's better than anything you could ever research. He is the eternal Son of God who came to earth, took on flesh, took on your sins on the cross, died, was buried, rose again so that we do not have to fear death. And he reigns at this moment over all things and he will return one day to make all things right. That is the good news. That is the source of our salvation. And we receive that. And we say, God, we want that to be true. We believe that to be true. What do I do with that? If that's true, what do I do with that? What, what's practical about that? Well, I'm glad you asked. There's practical theology. Biblical theology, historical theology, systematic theology, and then practical, so what? You, you get excited and say those things about Jesus, so what? Well, number one, it sure helps you deal with the problem of sin and death in the world. When I look at my own life and think about how messed up I am and how messed up I felt at times this last week, as we think about the reality of death and mortality in the world, two problems every person faces on earth, sin and death. We can't overcome those on our own. He has. Your sin and brokenness, the reality that every one of us will face death, Jesus has dealt with that. He is our hope. And here's what I really want to say to you this morning as well. There's this problem of evil and suffering if you were to go out and talk to people in the world, friends, coworkers, family members, you were to go out and talk to people who don't believe in God, don't believe in Jesus, aren't, aren't Christians, say, I don't really want anything to do with that, and you were to ask why they don't believe in God, almost always the problem of evil and the problem of suffering will be near the top of that list. I can't believe in God because I look around and I see all this suffering in the world. I see all this evil in the world. I know what, what I've dealt with in my own life. And it, it's something that, that people really struggle with. And I want you to know this morning, I don't know any way to answer 
that hard question about the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. I don't know any way to answer that question without Jesus taking on flesh, dying, taking on our sins on the cross, and rising again. Without the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, I don't know how to answer that. But what you see with the way of Jesus is he came into our suffering. He entered into our suffering. He went through that suffering to the point of death on the cross, and he came out on the other side of it. And through suffering, he learned obedience. Through suffering, he was made perfect. Through suffering, he died for our sins, and there is hope beyond your suffering. And so why does that matter? Well, I can tell you that matters for Chris Price, and I can tell you that matters for Giovanna Price, and I can tell you that matters for Owen Neese, and I can tell you that matters for our friend Jim Harris as he battles through cancer and difficulty at the end of his life. I can tell you that matters for your neighbor who is struggling through family problems and job loss and financial difficulties. I can tell you that matters when you live in a world where you look around and everything feels so messed up and so broken and so painful. How do I make sense of living in a world with so much evil and suffering? Friend, the only way you make sense of that is to get back to the source of your theology, back to the source of your salvation, and look at Jesus, who entered into that suffering, who died on the cross, and who rose again to tell you he will return one day to make all things right. And when you go through that evil, when you go through that suffering, guess what? He shows you how to go through it. He says, I will walk with you through it. Through prayer, through the gift of the church, through how suffering builds endurance and patience and hope into our life to get to a point that we say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. I trust you. I don't know why this situation is happening in my life. I don't know why this is going on in the world. Not my will, but your will be done. I trust you. Would you bow with me? Here in just a minute, we're going to stand. We're going to sing a final song that's called Jesus is Better, that Jesus is better than anything this world could offer. Jesus is better than any solution that I could try to come up with to the pain and difficulty of the world. Jesus is better. He's able to overcome the difficulties in our lives, in our world. Let me ask you right now, uh, just as you have your head bowed and eyes closed, I know life moves quickly when we <laughs> dismiss from a worship service. There's a lot on your plate, a lot of things in front of you this week. First question, where are you looking to overcome the sin and the brokenness and the reality of death that every one of us face? That we all have to deal somehow with what it means to live in a world where things seem to be so messed up. And, and where do you look for, for the answers in that? And if you're here this morning, I would just urge you to look to Jesus. Maybe you never have before. Maybe you've never looked to him. And if you're going through a time of difficulty or suffering in your life, I want to remind you that there's hope. That you would say, Lord, I trust you. I trust your plans. I trust your will. I need to stop trying to be in control of my life. I need to stop trying to deal with these things on my own strength. I need to trust you. God, would you get us to that point that we are able to look to Christ when we're suffering and know that he's right there with us.
And if you're here this morning and you've never been baptized, you've never taken that step to show people God's work in your life, that maybe today is the day you need to take that step. Whatever it is, we have an opportunity to get ready to scene in just a moment to make that response. God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift of waterfalls in Colorado. Thank you for the gift of churches gathered together to go out and serve next week. God, thank you for the gift of Jesus. And I pray that as we sing together and respond this morning, that we would trust him above all else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 